I remember when I would go to the beach with my family on vacation as a child. Uh, my dad would always say to me, he would say, Will, you know, when you go out into the ocean, make sure you look up and keep your eyes on our spot, uh, whether that's our hotel or like an umbrella or whatever we had. He would say, always keep your eye on our spot. Uh, if not, he said, if you're not careful, you'll drift away and you'll find yourself very far from where we are. You'll very, find yourself very far from home. And of course, what did I do? I took my floaty, my, you know, my tube, and I got out into the water, drink in my hand, you know, I, and just got comfortable. And I relaxed. I'm out in the ocean and I'm just chilling. And then a half hour later, I look up and I'm like, where is my family? Where did they go? And you look around, you panic for a moment and you realize that you're a quarter of a mile from your hotel. And I'm like, what just happened? Well, what happened was I got comfortable. I took my eyes off of my point of reference and I drifted away. And because I wasn't actively paddling my way down the beach and I wasn't actively uh, uh, watching, uh, watching my point of reference, I drifted away. I didn't try to drift away. I didn't do anything to drift away. I just got comfortable and I drifted away. And we are studying the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. He wrote these letters in the first century. And this week we're looking at a church in a city called Laodicea. And Jesus's rebuke to this church is he says they're a church that has become comfortable. They're a church that has become comfortable in their prosperity. They were a prosperous church. They were successful and they enjoyed the comfort of the prosperity And because they were so busy relaxing and taking comfort in all of those things, they took their eyes off of their reference point, which for the church is supposed to be Christ, and they drifted. And Jesus says that they've drifted away from him. And so I want you to hear what he says. And this week, instead of reading it all at once and then giving you sort of bullet points, I just want to work through the passage line by line. And so it begins, chapter 3, verse 14, it says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, I write, the words of the Amen. That's Jesus, the words of the Amen. And Amen simply means truth. So when somebody says Amen, or when you hear me shout Amen during a song, it just means it's true. He says, the words of the one who is true, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, meaning God sees all. He's the faithful witness. He witnesses everything. And that's been the whole point of these letters in Revelation. He sees the heart of these Christians in these churches. He sees that all that nobody else sees, the good and the bad. I see your suffering. I see your pain, he says to some of the churches that are struggling. And he says, I see your problems, he says to the churches that have lost their way. He sees, he's the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He's seen it all from beginning to end. And there's actually, I mean, he sees Laodicea. And that's the point of this passage today is he sees them. And there's actually a great deal of history on Laodicea. And so we know quite, about, quite a bit about Laodicea. And so I want to give you four facts about Laodicea before we get sort of dig into the scripture. The first thing is that Laodicea was known for their wealth. Of all the churches, of all the cities in Asia Minor, Laodicea was a very important financial center in this part of the world. Um, You remember last week when uh, I talked about the earthquakes that destroyed the ancient city of Philadelphia? 
And we talked about how they relied on the assistance of Rome to help them rebuild their city after the earthquakes. Well, Laodicea was about 40 miles from Philadelphia. And so they were hit by the same earthquakes. And when Rome, though, offered money to assist and to give them money to help them rebuild their city, Laodicea refused government aid. They said, nope, we can take care of it. We've got, we don't need federal aid. We've got this. They didn't need Rome's help. That's how wealthy they were. They literally told the Roman government, the most powerful government in the history of the world, they said, we can save ourselves. We can rebuild on our own. We're fine. This was an extremely wealthy city. But secondly, they were known for their health. There was a major medical school that was located in Laodicea. In fact, they were famous for developing something called Phrygian powder, which in that they produced it, they developed it, and they exported it. And it was eye medicine. It was an eye salve. And it was thought to have cured vision ailments at the time. So they were known for their wealth. They were known for their health. But they were also known for their fashion. One of their biggest exports was black wool. They made a lot of quality clothing and they exported that uh, all over the world. And so these, I mean, this was a very influential, very uh, wealthy, very healthy, very prosperous city. They, um, They had major exports, they had wealth, they had cultural influence, and they took great pride in these things. It sounds a lot like New York, doesn't it? I mean, we, we are a very prideful city. We love to be from New York. And why do we have pride? Because it's a wealthy city. I mean, we got Wall Street. We've got, I mean, we are the culture. We are the most influential financial center on the planet. We're known for our health. Memorial Sloan Kettering, New York Presbyterian. We have, we have like three or four of the top ten hospitals in the world. We're known for our health. And we are known for our fashion. They were known for black wool. What are New Yorkers known for wearing? Black. Everything. And they took great pride in these things, just like we as a city take great pride in these things. But remember these health, wealth, and fashion. We'll come back to them in a moment. They were also known for their water, though. And this wasn't a positive characteristic. So they have three positive things, and then there's one thing that they were known for that was kind of uh, not uh, negative. And that was they were known for their water. It was very polluted and very dirty. Despite all their wealth, their water was worthless. It was undrinkable. So what they had to do is they had to bring in water from neighboring towns. And so they brought in cold water from Colossae through underground pipes. And it was cold. It was clear water. It was from the mountains. It was refreshing water. And then they got their hot water through aqueducts from Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was known for hot springs. And they, people would heal, like, bathe in those. It was like a spa treatment. It was nice. It was refreshing. It was comforting. And there were these very impressive structures, the aqueducts and the pipes. I mean, this is first century. So this is really amazing stuff. And there were very impressive structures that they built to get themselves clean water. But the problem is that by the time the water got to Laodicea, the cold water from Colossae wasn't cold anymore. And the hot water from Hierapolis wasn't hot anymore. It was lukewarm. The refreshing, cool water from Colossae was no longer refreshing, and the hot, healing water from Hierapolis was no good for anything. The word that we would use to describe it is meh. It was lukewarm. It was just there was nothing to it. In fact, if you drank it, you would want to spit it out. That was the one weakness of Laodicea. It was the thing that they were, you know, they had all this pride, but they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like New Yorkers. We're, we're, we love our health, our wealth, our fashion, all that sort of stuff, but we're a very dirty city. And so it's like, man, I love New York, but the rats, oh, the rats. 
pizza rats. Why, God, why? They were known for their polluted, their dirty water. And of course, Jesus is like Jesus. If he if it were modern day, like I think he would be like a rapper because the way he uses like double entendre and the way he uses wordplay to sort of get at the core of the issue is amazing here. He associates them. He associates the water of Laodicea to the spiritual state of the church in Laodicea. He says, I know your works. You're not hot and you're not cold. I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm and you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. See, he's like, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm. And listen, if, I don't know if you, you got your coffee cups this morning, you probably went to Coffee RX this morning or Cocoa Grinder, and you looked at the menu this morning at whatever coffee shop you went to, and there are two columns. There's one for hot drinks and there's one for cold drinks. The hot drinks keep you warm in the winter. They give you comfort, that cozy feeling when you sit down with a book or when you sit down with a friend to you know, have that warm drink in your hand. There's something comforting about that. And then on a hot day, maybe today you got iced coffee. There's something refreshing about an iced drink on a hot day. But what you won't find on the menu at any coffee shop in Bay Ridge is the lukewarm menu. It happened to me this morning. Anybody with kids, you know this, right? You make your coffee in the morning, you set it down, and then you're like, oh, I gotta change this diaper, I gotta get this, I gotta get that, I gotta get that. And then you come, you sit down, you're like, oh, finally, I sit down in my chair, I'm gonna drink my coffee, and you take a sip of it, and you're like, Pah! it's warm. And so you microwave it like four times every morning. You, nobody likes lukewarm coffee, nobody likes lukewarm water. And Jesus says this about the church He's like, I wish you were hot or cold, but you're neither. See, the church, God has a mission for the church, a calling for his people wherever he places them. And that is to be, you have a purpose. And cold water has a purpose, doesn't it? Cold water is refreshing. It's a ref- I mean, and Christians should be a refreshing presence in any city. We ought to quench the spiritual thirst and the longings of our neighbors. Hot water is comforting. You bathe in it. You relax in it. It can, it can be you know, a warm drink. Uh, Christians should be a comforting presence to people in our city, to our city. Hot, also you think of passion. Christians ought to have passion in our city. But lukewarm water is without a purpose. There's no purpose for lukewarm water. And Jesus says this church in Laodicea has lost their sense of purpose. They gathered. They showed up on Sunday morning. They sang. They took up an offering. They preached sermons. They had small groups, but there was nothing to their church. There was no substance. There was no passion for God, no passion for their neighbors. They were lukewarm. And so the question we have to ask if we want to avoid the same pitfalls is, well, how did they get that way? How does lukewarm water get lukewarm? You know, for hot water to become hot or cold water to become cold, It needs like water needs a source outside of itself to become hot or to become cold. If you want cold, if I want cold drinking water, I put it in the refrigerator. If I want ice, I put it in the freezer. The water is dependent upon that source to become cold. If I want hot water, though, I put it in a a kettle and I put it on the stovetop or I put it in the microwave or I boil it. That's how you make hot water. The water, if lukewarm water is to become hot, it needs a source more powerful and outside of itself. If I want lukewarm water, what do I do? I just set it out. Lukewarm water, it takes no action in either direction. It 
All water has to do to become lukewarm is to just be still, to just be comfortable, to detach itself from a heating or a cooling source. And what lukewarm water is, it is something that has accommodated itself to the temperature around it, to to the environment around it. And this is what has happened to the church, to the Christians in Laodicea. They just adapted to the temperature of their environment. They adapted to the culture around them. There's no indication. Laodicea was a city that was known for wealth and health and prosperity and fashion. And those are all good things, but they're not ultimate things. And if we're not careful, we can become comfortable in those things and drift from the main thing, which is our keeping our eyes on Christ. And that is exactly what happened to this church in Laodicea. They were just as wealthy, just as healthy, just as fashionable as the people around them. They had money. They felt good. They looked good. And what happened was they didn't think they needed God. They didn't think that they needed a source more powerful and outside of themselves to depend on to make them cold or to make them hot. And so they became lukewarm. They just adjusted to the temperature and the culture around them. And Jesus says to them, look at this in verse 17. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered. He says, but you say, and I need nothing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And again, Jesus is like an MC here. I mean, the wordplay is genius. This city, these Christians prided themselves on being wealthy, healthy, and fashionable. And Jesus says, you're poor, blind, and naked, and I pity you. They said to God, I don't need anything. Just like they said to Rome, they said, ah, we don't need anything. I mean, can you imagine? It's as if this church, if like they're gathering one Sunday and Jesus himself shows up and says, hey, what do you guys want? What do you guys need? And they're like, ah, we're good. We don't need anything. They thought they had it all. And listen, they they became misguided in their prosperity and they became self-sufficient. And self-sufficiency leads to deception. And to quote Pink Floyd, it leads to us becoming comfortably numb. They had been lulled to sleep spiritually by their own prosperity. And if Jesus himself had showed up into their church and asked what they needed from him, they, they would say, ah, nothing, we're good. I want you to see the danger of prosperity. Money is not a bad thing. Health is not a bad thing. Fashion is not a bad thing. Those are all good things. And here's what Jesus is saying to these Christians. He's saying wealth, prosperity, health, they're all good things. But there is a danger in your life when things are so good that you might lose sight of your dependence on God. And that's exactly what happened to this church in Laodicea. And I believe this is a great danger for us as well. The greatest thing that you can possess as a Christ follower is a sense of dependency. The greatest thing you can possess as a follower of Jesus is a sense of dependency. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you hear that and you're like, well, how are the poor blessed? Because if I had a choice, I would choose wealth over poverty. And you would too. But it's true. And you know it's true. That when you have prosperity you can more easily lose sight of your dependence and your need for God. And it's also true, and you know it's true, that when you have little, when you go through the difficult seasons, 
That is when the, the, those seasons when you're sick, those feelings, seasons when you feel naked or vulnerable. Those are often the times when you feel God most intimately because your sense of dependency on him is so great and you need him. And in those times where you need him, those are the times where you feel him and you cling to him and you grow in him. Let me just get autobiographical for a moment. Let's talk about poverty. Um, I remember one of the most intimate, prayerful seasons of my life was the first four months of my marriage. We had nothing. My wife and I, you know, we left our families. We moved to a new city and we had nothing. I was in school. I was in seminary at the time. And Rebecca had just moved there with me. She didn't have a job. It took her months to find a job. And I made $400 a week working in a copy and mail center. And then I also got, I made $1,500 uh, for the season for co- coaching high school track. But I didn't get paid until the end of the season. And so I had to wait for that. So I got paid $400 a week. And we literally lived for four months off of the generosity of others. And we prayed for everything we got in that season. But we were dependent upon God for everything because we were so aware of our need and we were so aware of our poverty. But because of our poverty, we were aware and grateful of God's blessings in our life. Just one example is at the mail and copy center that I worked for, the local Chick-fil-A franchise was a client of ours. And they would print their coupons with us. And the manager of the store, of the Chick-fil-A store, she was a Christian. And she would come in every month or so and she would print these stacks of coupons. And we would print them for her and she would take them and she would come in. And she found out that I was a seminary student. She found out that I was a Christian. She found out that I was trying to support a new wife. And one week I remember she came in and right as she was, I gave her her stack of uh, coupons and they came in like a sheet. There were nine to a page. And as she was leaving, she looked around and she took three stacks, three sheets of paper off the top and she handed them to me. And she said, I hope you guys are blessed by this. Three sheets, nine meals per page, 27 meals. That fed my wife and I for two weeks. And I remember, I remember weeping over those three little pieces of paper and just be thanking God with every bite of those Chick-fil-A sandwiches that I bit of. Because I had been provided for. I knew that I could not have afforded to take my wife to Chick-fil-A. But by God's grace, I was given those things. And I, I was so grateful for that. We were poor, but we were so rich in our awareness of God's grace and God's provision. Now, today, my wife and I have good jobs. This church takes good care of my family. I have savings. I have a retirement plan. My wife has a job. By global standards, I'm very wealthy. And it's easy now for me to lose my sense of gratitude and dependence on God for the meals that are on my table. I mean, just for example, last Sunday night after church, I went over to my brother's house and he cooked dinner for me at his own expense. Great dinner. And we were gathering together. We were both track and field fans and we were watching the U.S. track and field championships. It's like a big day for my brother and me. And it was time to eat, and you know somebody had to say the blessing. And because I'm the pastor, I, I, I was asked to say the blessings. I had to thank God for the food. But to be honest with you, I wanted to watch the track meet, and I was ready to eat. I was hungry. And you know what my prayer was? I said, everybody, I said, everybody bow your heads. Thank you, God, for food and family. Amen. And I, I didn't think anything of it. 
And a few days later, the Holy Spirit, as I was preparing this message, actually, the Holy Spirit brought that moment back into my mind and convicted me of just how flippantly I thanked God for a hot meal with my brother. Like the, all the blessings wrapped up in that phrase, hot meal with my brother. Like I, I'm not from New York. The very fact that my brother just moved here is like a blessing to me. And the very fact that he made a meal for me and we got to watch, nobody else, none of you care about track and field. And the fact that my brother's here and I have somebody that I can watch track with. There was so much blessing happening in that moment. I said, oh, thanks God for it. Let's get back to what we were doing. Flippancy. I wasn't even acknowledging or thanking God I was going through religious motions because in my prosperity, I forgot how much I needed God and what a blessing those moments are. Let's talk about sickness. You know, I could talk about how my life has been completely wrecked by the disabilities and health challenges of my son, but I talk about that a lot. But I also want you to show you even how small and trivial things can pull us away from our sense of dependency on God. You know, about three months ago, I told you this a few weeks ago, but about three months ago, I went for a run and I messed up my Achilles. I fought really bad. And my physical therapist told me, she said, you need, you need to at least take two weeks off and you might need to take up to three months off. And I know to you guys, that seems like no big deal to you, but you have to realize running, it's a big deal to me. And I, I mean, you guys know, like in the last like nine months, I've lost like 20 or 30 pounds because I got back into shape and started running and running is what kind of helped me wean myself off of depression and anxiety medication. And like, I mean, running is like a, it's like a stabilizing force in my life. And when I go for a run, that's usually where my most like intimate prayers happen. Like running is very, very important to me. It's not just a hobby. It's important to my spiritual health, my mental health, all that sort of stuff. And when my Achilles first started hurting, I wasn't really sure how bad it was. And I was afraid that I might have to take like months and months off of running. And I know it sounds trivial, but in my mind, I was going, I'm going to gain all the weight back. Like depression's going to come back. I'm not going to have like these, these times of quiet to have where my prayer life can be strengthened. And like it just, it, 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 it made me cling to Christ. It sounds trivial, like an Achilles injury. Like what? Who cares? Like you're not a real athlete. You're, like you're not winning anything anymore. But it, but it mattered to me. And listen, God is a good father and he wants to hear about the things that matter to you. And I got to understand God as father in those moments because even as trivial as it sounded, those prayers of like, God, heal my Achilles. Those brought me closer to him. And those put in me a sense of dependency. And now my foot healed pretty quickly, ended up not being as bad as I thought. And I didn't miss much training. And now I'm like, I don't even think about it. I just go for a run. Don't even think it's like how quickly we lose our sense of dependency. Right. And that sounds like a trivial story. But for those of you who've battled cancer, those of you who've walked with a parent through Alzheimer's, those of you who have sat by your child's hospital bed when something painful is going on with them, you know that there is an intimacy and a dependency that happens when you walk through sickness and suffering that you don't feel when things are going well. Nakedness. Jesus told this church in Laodicea, he said, you're naked. In the Bible, nakedness is always used as a symbol for shame and guilt. Adam and Eve, when they first sinned, it says they, they felt shame and they realized that they were naked. And you know exactly, you know the first thing they did? They covered themselves up with tree leaves. And listen, we do this all the time. When we feel shame, when we feel guilt, when we feel insecurity, we look for all sorts of things to cover ourselves, 
to cover our shame, to cover our guilt, whether it's accomplishments or education or wealth or hobbies or humor. You know, sometimes we just we, we try to cover our pain by trying to be funny or we co- try to cover it with fashion. We try to put the we try to cover it with our social media projections that we show the world. Like, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. We try to let everybody see. But on the inside, we feel naked. We feel vulnerable. And we feel exposed. And so we look for things to cover us up so that people don't see what's really going on. And the truth is, we're so good at it that we fool ourselves. We can cover and we can numb our shame. Sometimes we cover our shame with accomplishments and sort of things. Sometimes we cover it with busyness, with overwork, with wasting our time on the Internet, with binge watching television. We do all these things that numb us from actually reckoning with what's going on in our hearts. And we don't take the time to be silent before God and recognize that we have shame and that we have guilt and that we think we're fine. We become blind to the sin patterns in our lives, our pride, our lust, our greed, our bitterness. And we cannot see that we need Jesus to cover us and that we need Jesus to save us. We've got all these other saviors, our careers, our hobbies, and we let let them cover us when what we really need is to be covered by the righteousness of Christ. This is why Jesus told a story about two men. One guy goes up to the temple and he's like, man, I really belong here. Thank God. God, aren't you glad I tithe and I pray and I'm not like that sinner over there, that loser? And he points over to this other guy who's ripping his clothes. And he's going, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said one guy in that story walked away justified. The other guy walked away blinded to his sin and headed toward hell. Which one do you think it was? It was the man who understood His need for Christ. He knew he was guilty. He knew he had shame. And he knew that he could not cover up those things in his life. And the only hope he had for being reconciled to God was for God to cover him. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, ha, he got it. That's that's hot. That's not lukewarm. And I belabored my point on purpose. Because I want you to see that prosperity has a way of drawing our eyes off of Christ. And poverty, by God's grace, also has a way of drawing us back. And that's what happened to the Christians in Laodicea. They were lulled to sleep by their prosperity and and their comfort. And they were lulled into lukewarmness. But Jesus is gracious. And I want you to look at the invitation he offers to them. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And I counsel you to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And I counsel you to buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus says, buy from me. He uses commerce language because they're familiar with that. And he says, buy gold from me so that you'll be rich. Now, Jesus has no use for currency. When he says, buy from me gold, he's not talking about actual gold. He's talking about what Peter calls an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. For Peter even says, it's kept in heaven being guarded for you. That means the market can't affect it. That means robbers can't steal it. And that means that your sin cannot nullify it. There is gold that is refined by fire that Jesus has for you. And it is the very presence of himself. He says, buy white garments so that you can cover the shame of your nakedness. Remember, Laodicea, they were known for their black wool. They were known for their 
fashion. They were known for wearing black. And New Yorkers are known for wearing a lot of black. Why? It doesn't show dirt. It's a dirty city. But white shows everything, doesn't it? That's why you don't wear white in New York. You don't wear white on the train. I don't know how you guys wear white sneakers. I can't keep mine clean in this city. But Jesus says, I'm going to cover you with white garments. Your sin will be covered. And what people will see is not the dirt of your sin and your shame, but people will see pure, radiant, and white robes. I will cover your dirt, your shame, your guilt. And you can do nothing to stain these robes because they are kept clean by Jesus himself, who defeated your sin and death on the cross and through his resurrection. My sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. He says, buy from me to anoint your eyes. I'll open your eyes so that you can see who I am, what I offer to you. I will show you that I'm far greater, far more beautiful, far stronger than the trivial things that keep competing for your attention. Buy from me, buy from me, buy from me. Do you see what he's doing? He's taking the things that they took pride in and he's saying, look, you think that that fashion covers you. You think your wealth is, makes you secure and you think your health is going to get help you live forever. None of those things can accomplish what you think they can accomplish. You need me for all of those things. You need me for your security. You need me for your covering and you need me for your eternity. And how do you buy it? Do you buy, how do you buy something from Jesus? Do you buy it with money? No, he doesn't need it. Do you buy it with influence or power? No, he's not impressed with your influence or power. He already has far more of it than you. Psalm 51 says the sacrifices of God, meaning the currency which God accepts is a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Best blessed are the poor in spirit because they know their need for Christ. And when you know your need for Christ, you become dependent upon him. And when you become dependent upon him, when you come to him with open hands, he fills them. How do you buy from Jesus? You offer him your open hands. You offer him your dependence. Those whom I love, he says, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And I love how it, gracious Jesus is here. He's reminding these Christians. He's like, look, I'm not calling you out because I'm ticked off. I'm not calling you out because I'm angry. I'm calling you out because I love you. So be zealous and repent. Come back to me. Put your spiritual water, your, your need, your spiritual need in the refrigerator of my mercy and I'll make you cold and re I'll refresh you. Put your spiritual need on the stovetop of my grace and I will warm you up and I will bring you to a boiling point. Let me change the temperature of your heart. If you're lukewarm today, how do you become hot? How do you become cold? You put yourself and you entrust yourself to a source that is greater and more powerful, powerful than you. You must be fully dependent on Christ himself. Jesus says, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Listen, these Christians, they were so enamored with everything going around them. They were so consumed with their comfort, with their wealth, with the status, with their size, with all the, with their influence that they failed to see that they had locked Jesus out of their lives. They didn't think they needed him. They had all that they thought they needed. But the good news is Jesus says, he's like, look, you've become blinded by all your prosperity. And you really don't think you need me. 
You've locked me out. But he says, look, I'm still standing at the door. I'm still knocking. And if you open that door, I'll always step right in. I will always step right in. Invite me in. I'm ready to come back. And I'm ready to bring you back to a boiling point. I'm ready to make you refreshing once again. Now, what about you this morning? Like, what is the temperature of your heart? Like, really ask that. And why? Like, why is it that way? I mean, we can blame it on all sorts of things. We can blame it on our circumstances. We can blame it on whatever. But the truth is, the reason your heart is lukewarm today is because you've drifted. You've took your eyes off of the point of reference. You've taken yourself off of the thing that you are dependent upon. And whatever the reason is, though, The remedy for you is to recover your dependence on Christ. The error of the church in Laodicea was that they said, I need nothing. But the truth for you and me this morning is this. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. What is the remedy for your lukewarmness? You need him. You need him. Let he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.